0: I don't know. I, I was thinking beginning of the year that I wanted to do a project and I thought 2020, I was like, I was reading the Joe Posnanski baseball 100 and I was thinking like, is there a, a an apple thing or, and I, this is what I decided was I am going to make an arbitrary list of max and use my, you know, old magazine archives and whatever I remember from those periods and talk to people. and, Tell little stories about them and see how it goes, and I think it'll be fun, and I think people will scream bloody murder at some of my choices, and that's all part of the fun, honestly. Right. Right.
1: I don't know. I don't follow. I didn't. I don't know where the feedback would have gone. I don't know how much you know complaints Joe got about uh, the the. I call him Joe like I know him, but I just don't know how to pronounce his surname. <laughs> but Pusnansky. But uh, I guess it's actually not that hard. I guess that's how I would have guessed. But uh, I don't know how much grief he got about putting Willie Mays first and Babe Ruth second. But it looks looks pretty good this week. <laughs> yeah.
0: No kidding. <laughs> well, and he, yeah, he uh, living in Kansas City so long. He had a like a really close relationship with like Buck O'Neill and the Negro Leagues uh, Hall of Fame is in Kansas City. And so, you yeah. know, one of the points whenever he does historic stuff is to elevate the Negro Leagues and and uh-huh. say you can't ignore these guys, which I always like. So he's always making a statement yeah. uh, on that on that level. All right, right, so Power Mac G5 and of the way that I always bracketed this is I'm I'm being sneaky here because I'm also kind of awarding the metal cheese grater with holes because it was such a resilient industrial design that it it contained many different computers inside it for a long span of time.
1: Yeah, and it's I guess it's the fir- it is the first one that went for the desktop that went metal. I mean, you know, I know Apple right. actually uses metal to talk about the APIs for thing, But I just mean, seriously, they just made like a whole computer out of aluminum mm-hmm. and steel. And, it, 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 you know, it, we talk about the beige box era of PCs and that Apple, you know, maybe that was just as a very broad stroke. But probably accurate that the fact that Apple itself got caught up in building beige boxes for a long stretch of the 90s. Wasn't good. It was like a sign of rot within Apple. Mm-hmm. But what were those beige boxes made of? You know, and I guess some of them were actually made of metal. You know that there were parts. I think my ninety six hundred had like a metal drawer that popped off. Uh, you know, but this was just unapologetically. Look, it is metal. This is like if you didn't know what it was and you took it back to nineteen fifty three. It still. It looks like something from an industrial shop, right? It's funny,
0: too, when you think about it now, because I think most people would say Apple is, those in the know would say Apple has some of the best talent involving aluminum in the world, that they've become an expert, one of the world's experts in the uh, creation of aluminum objects because of all of the things that they've built, especially the laptops, but all the stuff they built out of aluminum. And this is one of the earliest experiments and expressions of aluminum. I think and and of 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 working in metal in interesting ways with those little you know the perforated front and all of that.
1: And I think that there's a uh, and when you talk to anybody who worked at Apple in in modern era and I always define the modern era as after the next reunification um, but especially let's say from the 2000s forward where they really kind of got got their sea legs under them you know that those 97, 98 years were sort of <laughs> sort of shaky. Hmm. Uh, they they often talk about honesty in design. And, and it's that's, that can sound pretentious, and I think it's easy to get lost in a conversation on that and, and get lost in pretension. But I think that when you listen to them, it never sounds frou-frou or abstract. It actually always comes down to concrete things that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be in a, poetic sense of mind to understand. And we'll often come back. I'll bet like a lot of these discussions you're having, we'll come back to that four square diagram, pro Mm -hmm. consumer, laptop, desktop. Um, and that all four could be good, but they all have to be honest and true to themselves. And what is the difference between a consumer desktop and a pro desktop? And it's not just specs. I guess that's where I'm going with this, is it's not just, well, the pro should be faster and more expensive. Like, making it out of metal it unapologetically says this is a professional tool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's something that has come up a lot, is the blue and white and the and the power mac g4 were plastic and they were kind of like shiny or colorful the blue and white colorful the g4 had various kinds of gray and silver that they tried to do and it was kind of more of a fun thing and the uh and and the power mac g5 is like no we're we're gonna be pro and we're gonna look serious and it sort of remained so
1: Yeah, and I guess one way of looking at that, and is that you could kind of look at the Power Mac G three in particular with the coloring that was the Bondi blue uh, of the iMac, you know, and even when they went to the G four and used, I forget what did they call that color, slate or or whatever.
0: Yeah, I don't even know.
1: Whatever they called the color, it was more serious. But you could still squint at those things. And, and if you didn't really know, you wouldn't know if they were meant for professionals or consumers based on just the look and the feel and the materials. Whereas when you looked at the Power Mac G5, there was no question. Even if you didn't know anything about computers, you wouldn't think this is a consumer product.
0: Right. Right. It's, it's not they're trying to create the the rules right the the sort of like what is a and i would argue that they've drained a little too much personality out of max in general um they're all monochrome essentially metallic uh, and I wish that they would make max that felt a little more fun like they have on some of their other product lines but um i yeah I, I think here they're they're saying here's a serious here's a serious product it's serious metal right it's a a big solid piece of professional
1: machinery. Hmm. It was, it was humongous. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing.
0: I had a, I had a tower desk, so I had a place to put it and it was like, it barely fit. I had to take, it used to have like a shelf above it and I had to take the shelf out. Cause it's was like, nope, it's not, it needs the whole space. Um, you want to talk about the, the PowerBook duo?
1: Yes. Yes. So what year did the PowerBook Duo come out?
0: It's like 1991,
1: 92, somewhere in there. Yeah, introduced in 1992.
0: So Uh, so essentially like, I think a year after the PowerBook 100 line started. So very quickly thereafter, they were like, okay, first we did a notebook, and now we're going to do a sub-notebook, basically.
1: Yeah, and... uh, I, I really enjoyed your write up of it and I didn't have one this is you know I guess there's no way I would have bought one even if I had the money but I really voraciously read all the reviews of it because it's like the it, it, the basic idea was that in 1992 or whenever they designed it you know you'd have to go at least go back to surely 91 1990 it, they clearly had the scent of where things were going Mm -hmm. in a fairly distant future, which is that you should be able to have a computer that isn't the weight of like the OED in your backpack. You know, you should have a computer that is actually as portable as a normal book, you know, like, sure. Maybe it's a couple pounds. I mean, it, But it's, you know, something that you could reasonably put in a backpack and carry around and sort of forget that you even have it in your backpack in the way that you do with like a normal novel or just a normal textbook. And you listen to me say that now and you're like, well, duh. But in 1992, that was revolutionary. It really was. I mean, it was. It just was nothing like, like the laptops of the time. Well, the Mac,
0: um, the Mac Portable. And, they were making these decisions when they had shipped the Mac Portable, which weighed 16 pounds, and they were already designing <laughs> a Mac that weighed half that, right? Which was the first PowerBook, which was about seven pounds. But somebody there said, "Okay, pat, pat yourself on the back. We got it. We got it under under uh, 16 pounds. We're, we're down at seven now." That's not good enough. And then the Duo is four. So in the span of a couple of years, they went from designing a 16-pound laptop to a four-pound laptop. And while we would think a four-pound laptop today is heavy, consider (laughs) how, how much lighter it was than the PowerBook, which was itself half as heavy as the Mac Portable.
1: Right. The Mac portable was 16 pounds, which is insane. Whenever I think of the Mac portable, I always think of uh, then Celtics point guard D. Brown, who I remember reading was actually a computer nerd. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? And in fact, he took a Mac portable with him everywhere on on the road. And I was like, oh, that's who can afford a Mac portable. <laughs> An NBA also. And it's small to him. Huge basketball <laughs> right. players like that. Yeah. Well, he was... <laughs> He was a point guard, so he was he wasn't actually that tall. He but, still, uh, still was yeah, probably think, like six four, right? <laughs> you know, tall, yeah. And I think he, you know, he, yeah, and he hit the weight room so he could carry that mm-hmm, sixteen pound. Yeah, but then, but basically, the thi- then you you just start with that basic premise of shouldn't we be able to make a Mac laptop? You know, what what's the bare minimum? Well, you need a screen, you need a keyboard, you need a pointing device, and you need to be able to run Mac software, and again... Uh, Basically, that is the minimum, right? You need a screen, you need a keyboard, you need a trackpad or trackball, and, uh, you know, power, you know, you need a battery, and then, you know, you just start taking stuff out from there, and then, you know, the the basic idea of, well, what if we put the rest of it in a dock, and then you could take it out, and it all sounds good, and it's an idea, you know, comes back time and time again, people think about stuff like this. Boy, they had to make a lot of concessions, you know, and it—it it ultimately, I don't think, was a very, you know, there's a reason we don't remember the whole series of PowerBook duos <laughs> taking the world by storm in the '90s. Um, well, it, it's it, I guess I guess it's just one of those things that Apple of that time would ship maybe ideas <laughs> is the best well, way to put it.
0: It was, I think, it gets at something about trying to find they knew the de, the consumer desire. Right, I think they understood that, and I'm reminded of a lot of later laptops, like you said, like the MacBook Air, for example. Um, the The fact that they tried to also make it a desktop is interesting, like with a whole case, and you inserted it inside, and it could use a different processor when it was inserted, and uh, use you know an external display. And Apple never made a docking station again. Right, that was that Apple decided at some point, like, no, we just designed the laptop and you use it. And if you want to do something else with it, just, you know, that's up to you. We don't want to deal with that anymore. But like, I think their instincts were actually pretty good. And it was too early. And the only thing that could have possibly happened was they could have said, this is just too early. Let's not do it. But the duos had a real following. I mean, there were PowerBook people, and then there were duo people. But in the end, I think it was too much of a a niche. And I think maybe Apple decided, well, why don't we just make a you know, keep making our regular laptops thinner and lighter, and focus on that. And they didn't really want to have two different uh, lines. They, there was one Power PC duo, so like they they were they were, they were like the Mac fans in the computer world, where there was like everybody else had a PC, and then there were Mac people, and in within the Mac thing, there were like there was everybody wanted a PowerBook, and then there were those duo people. They were there. they were there.
1: Yeah, and I guess I guess the other thing that's really important to remember in historical hindsight. Was is overall in the scheme of personal in in the history of personal computing, the era of being able to reliably sync your stuff between multiple devices is still fairly recent. And 1992 was way before that really was possible. I mean, there just there there wasn't a Wi-Fi even networking wasn't networking period with a cable wasn't something you could really count on i mean most transfer from one machine to another was by you know moving disks whether they were floppies or you know unmounting hard drives and mounting them into a different one and stuff you did over a file server wasn't really machine to machine it was like you'd save it on the file server and then go to a different machine that connected to the same file server and pull it down and it it's all my way of saying that it it really was in some ways worth this monumental effort to have one computer that was an underpowered laptop and a more desktop powered desktop as one computer that you docked, they even if it meant a mountain of, you know, like dongle town concessions, compared to the obvious question, I think a lot of maybe younger people would think is, well, why wouldn't you just have two Why wouldn't you get two computers, right? Why not just have a laptop and a desktop and let them each be each? And it's, that was really, and cost aside, you know, that just that that was an enormous expense, especially the laptop part of it, um, it just was an enormous technical hassle, yeah. and stuff was never, ever in sync, no matter how good your personal habits were of every time I leave the office, remember, I'd sit, you know, drag this, this, and that over to this, this, and that, and I'll have a copy of everything up to date. You'd always be out of out of sync somewhere. Yeah. So having that one thing that you could drag around, if I've got the duo itself with me, I've got my stuff, was an enormous appeal.
0: Yeah, it was uh, two things you touched on there. Um price which is like it's not cheap to have a desktop on a laptop now but it's way cheaper than it was back then and yeah the convenience there's no cloud sync the duo doesn't even have a floppy drive on it so if you want to take your files you've got to have your duo wherever you are hooked up to a network networks you can't take for granted there weren't always networks and they weren't always very fast and then you would have to copy files using file sharing which was also not commonly available during that period without third-party software like it Became really complicated, so you basically had to live on your laptop, and that was the premise of the duo. Was your duo is your computer? You plug it in, and now it's your desktop, and now you unplug it, and it ejects like a disc ejecting from a CD-ROM drive. Or a, I always thought of it as like a VCR, like the videotape is popping yeah. out. <laughs> uh, which the, your laptop? I, I'm going to have to explain what a VCR is now, but yeah, uh, it was it was a weird, yeah, weird, weird computer. Never went back there again. Apple never, never went back there again for so many of the things they tried. And yet, you got to say, whoever thought up the Duo totally understood where laptops were going.
1: Yeah, and it definitely, there. The, before it existed, there were a lot of people who were saying, why don't they make a docking station? And then after they went away from it, there were always people who'd say, why don't they make something with mm-hmm. a docking station? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Can't please everybody. So, right right next to me here i have a powerbook um 5300 that i put, that i got off of ebay uh while i was writing this article about the fifth, this is that second generation second wave of powerbooks the 55300 and, and i mean you read my piece uh so many bad things happened with the with both of these laptops they they, they were they were Sleek and curvy and all sorts of things that the original power books weren't, but they were also just uh, so many promises unfulfilled or fulfilled so late as to not matter. And then with the 5300 uh, sort of disastrous launch where you had bad software and you had bad batteries and it was kind of a debacle um, for like two and a half years, basically, after being kind of on top of the world with the power book, Apple just compl- just they blew it with the 5300 and the 500
1: it's hard to it, so much was going on at apple in those mid 90s you know that 94 to 97 stretch uh, and and it's almost incredible how much went on in a four year stretch mm-hmm. um but if you really wanted to exemplify all of it the 5300 might be <laughs> it because it had everything right it had the engineering failure of the batteries it it had the bad press even like even their pr handling their press handling of it was terrible like there's is there any aspect of apple that that it didn't exempt you know didn't show how uh, what a failed company it was at the time i mean because one of the things that was it's very distinctive and i think anybody who was around at the time might be like wait really was the angle of everybody remembers the fact that they were the power books that caught fire right which is bad right that sounds bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i think the fact that they didn't catch fire in people's in customers hands people are like wait that no that's not true it definitely happened right didn't one burst into flames in the in the the overhead bin of an airplane wasn't that what happened and because i i I actually remember thinking that that had happened there was a you know there were stories like that 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 a powerbook 5300 burst into flame on an airplane in mid-flight and it's it it just all spiraled out of control like it was bad they did have a problem where the batteries caught fire Mm -hmm. which is bad enough but the the press was actually worse it, you know, it was that these were dangerous and, you know, and and the let's use it as a metaphor for a company that is a dumpster fire was, you know, jumped on, you know, of a quote unquote beleaguered Apple, right? Apple was beleaguered at the time. <laughs> and here here's the perfect metaphor for a, a columnist in a, you know, uh, wanting to make hay about the company and predict its demise. Well, what more could you ask for <laughs> than laptops that were catching fire?
0: Yeah. And uh, the the one that made me laugh reading the reviews, because like the reviews were savage. I, I found a Mac Week review that was a re review of the product after they, four months after they fixed the uh, software problem that led to lots of crashes. Four months they waited for that. They had to replace the batteries with batteries that had less capacity, by the way. That's really great to say, sorry, what we promised you, uh, we can't deliver because we have to go to this other battery technology because those batteries exploded. Um, but the best part, is that in the heyday of the CD-ROM era, they designed a laptop whose accessory bay was not quite big enough to fit a CD-ROM.
1: Right, right. And the idea of an accessory bay was clever, and at the time, really was I think a good idea because you could have, uh, like, the fifty-three hundred was one that you could have two batteries. Was that was that one of the PowerBooks that had two? One or, of them, no. I Was think. One a- of them you could, and one of them you couldn't.
0: Um, I think it might have been that the five hundred let you have two batteries, and the fifty-three hundred you just had one battery slot, mm. spot, and one accessory right. slot. But I might not be. I'm not one hundred percent on that.
1: Right. But the the basic idea though that they were that that these you could add if you really if you knew you didn't need a floppy drive you didn't have to have a floppy drive and you could go ahead of the curve on floppy drives and put something else in the spot and it wasn't a build to order configuration thing you know it it, it 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 was a good idea for the time given the you know the way that mid 90s hardware worked but like like you said like not having a cd rom drive as one of those at that time was just such a miss it's like that that really probably would have been the most perf- the, the most popular one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and it just the, they didn't design it with the right size and who knows why, but like you look back on it and it's just it was a very it was a rough rough era. Um they also did this is the era where they had like a PC card uh cage that they built that they they pro- proclaimed as being like Uh, Finally, you can use all those PC cards that PC laptops use, except it was not standard and most of them didn't have drivers. And I remember that from my 1400, I think, that had a PC card slot. So a few years later, and it's like PC cards, uh, you know, it it was more compatible than this, but it was still not particularly compatible. So there were lots of weird design decisions where they were trying to to keep up with the PC laptops that had kind of uh, keyed off of their success. Um, It was uh, and, and and. what else uh the power pc update was the other thing where they're like they sold the they couldn't do a power pc up uh laptop in time for the 500s 5300 was power pc uh the four digit number so <laughs> so, they just, so they they, they put just, a sticker they, they just, put a sticker on it by the monitor that said upgradable to power pc like by the screen there was a little <laughs> red sticker that said upgradable to power pc and you guessed it they shipped those upgrades way late. Laid in the game and there were third parties shipping power pc updates before apple was for those laptops so and never buy hardware where they promise an update later an upgrade later for you to buy like yeah oh, it was bad
1: yeah and even that even that is endemic of a problematic mindset within apple where they got way they got too caught up promising stuff for the future they got too caught up thinking about upgrades and stuff like that like And again, you know, maybe today's Apple, it's obviously a very long discussion that could make up many podcasts about whether the, you know, hardware should be upgradable at all. But in the nineties, that certainly was a thing, but they took it, taking it to the idea that you could upgrade from one processor architecture to another as an upgrade within a computer was obviously taking it way too far, right? Like whatever the proper balance of upgradability as a general principle Having a sixty eight thousand Mac that you could upgrade promised an upgrade, but it wasn't ready yet to an entirely different processor architecture. It was promising way too much. That just, just was not that. That should have been cut off right there in the in the discussion room. That's a bad idea. You know, when we'll come out with a version for for Power PC, you know, and it'll be a different laptop.
0: Yeah, I think they that, were desperate. It, it I, seems I think, very clear. I think they were desperate that everybody wanted a Power PC laptop, and they just were not capable of shipping it that was another failure yeah. of this product line so they instead made some promises and hoped that would be enough to get by it was not, yeah. not a good time not a good time yeah
1: or or put a you know tweaking that a slightly it's more or less that they were desperate desperate that what they had to offer period wasn't enough for people to buy mm-hmm. and so they had to sprinkle these promises of the future on top as opposed to here is what this thing is xyz it costs this much do you you know if you wanna buy it, buy it. That's it. And then we'll we'll come back in a couple months with a new product that does, you know, A B C for a price. They had to say, here's what it does, X, Y, Z, it costs this, but it's also going to do A B and C in a couple months for some extra money, maybe. It'll be a lot better. You know, it it just is not a good look. <sighs> 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 Um, well, yeah. you know what? Imagine, Jason. Just imagine how much sadder we would be if <laughs> if Apple had disappeared in 1999, and we were doing this podcast oh, in yeah. 2020. And we'd be pinning. We'd probably be pinning it all on the 5300. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, however sad we are, just remember they they pulled out of it.
0: <laughs> and Copeland probably like Copeland. Whoa! If right. only they had done Copeland. <laughs> yeah, the ni- 90s Apple super weird. People don't. There's not. I'm fascinated now because enough time has passed that people just don't remember 90s Apple. They remember the Steve Jobs return and the iPod and the, like, that's 20 years of history right there, right? More than 20 years of history. So that's what they remember. And like, wow, mid 90s Apple was not just about to go out of business, but so many of the things they did were, were strange and bad and weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, the 5300 is a good... like. My piece, basically what I said is, you know, the butterfly keyboard, it's bad, right? But <laughs> it's been worse. You just right. don't remember how bad it was.
1: At least it's explicable, mm. right? It's like they wanted yeah. to make a thinner keyboard. Okay. You know, that there's an explanation. It makes sense. You know, 50, there's a lot of it with the 5300 where it's inexplicable. It's like, I don't even know what you were hoping to 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 do there. Yeah. Uh, blue and white G3? I don't really have much to say. All right. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, you know.
0: It, it was, I, here's here's something that uh, came up that I, I like, which is there is not a more beige box than the, I you know, yeah. it's arguable, than the Power Mac G3 original. And the contrast, two computers called Power Mac G3. And the first one has a little, this little strip of green plastic that was like Johnny Ive saying, I'm here, I'm alive. Um, but the rest of it's just, it's just a beige box monstrosity and then like less than a year later I think comes this blue and white G3 that is very much like here's the end of old Apple and the beginning of new Apple in in two products that are named the same so that's the part about it is that that um and you know, and there had been other products too the iMac had come out, and so this was like the iMacification of the power Mac, but it was also I felt like a real moment, especially for for the power users who weren't going to buy the iMac. It was a moment where they're like, oh, everything has changed at Apple now that so that's, yeah, that's my take on that one,
1: yeah, and I think it's also, it's also to me an interesting yardstick on how fast Apple could move. Because I think that n- nobody was more depressed or upset or, you know, maybe in the case of Steve Jobs, angry about the boringness of the beige G3. You know, yeah. it, I don't know that anybody, you know, sir, I don't think Johnny Ive, you know, I, there's a reason that one didn't make it into the coffee table book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh you know, but look at how, you know, it took a couple years after the iMac to get to the, the Power Mac G3 that looked like the iMac. It takes time, right? It's not just, hey, let's just slap some plastic, you know, change the color of the plastic. It was redesigned.
0: Yeah. Um, Power Mac 9500, I wrote a whole thing about multiprocessing and the Daystar digital Genesis MP and all of that.
1: I, the thing I wanted to say about this, and again, I don't know if it counts. See, I I feel like, does it count to talk about the Power Mac 9600? Probably not. I guess that's I a different know. computer. You can uh, talk about it if you but want that to. Was the, uh, but that's the one I bought, which was, I believe I bought it in late 96, but I had bought it after the Power Mac G3 had come out. And I, therefore, it got the 9600 at a tremendous discount. So maybe I bought it in 97. Um, uh, but it was, I don't know. I don't have the numbers. But, and and again, you'd have to inflation adjust them. But, like, when the 9600 350 came out, which was sort of like the, okay, let's take everything we learned from the 9500 and the multiprocessing stuff and power PC chips had gotten a lot faster because they'd gone from the hundreds of megahertz to the three hundreds of megahertz, which is what the three fifty was, and it was ungodly expensive. And then the Power Mac G three came out and the Power Mac nine thousand six hundred was still around and the price like plummeted. And I was like, score, because I was just out of college and I had a just out of college budget. And I used that for years. And I really it really was a great computer. It was super reliable. It lasted for years. And uh, the only real hiccup was, again, promising things about the future, you know, which is something Apple doesn't do anymore, was that like the 9600. I think it was the PowerPC 604 series was the name of the processors, and Apple had originally promised in this plan to go to Mac OS 10 before they even had the name Mac OS 10 when it was, you know, what well Rhapsody.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: that uh uh PowerPC 604-based max Power Max would make the transition to the next operating system. And then eventually it turned out they didn't. I think they drew the line at the G3s. Um, so my 9600 never never got to run mac OS 10. But turns out by 2001, I was still using it till 2002, 2003. Maybe I wouldn't have wanted to install Mac OS 10 on it. You know, it was, that's another story, but it was fine. Hmm. I don't know that you can use it, but yeah. I don't know. But I, I guess the other thing before we go, sure. uh, you know, specifically about your article is um, uh, how bizarre this, this thing is where a th- third so the whole idea of clone so let's just <laughs> different discussion on the same article uh among the weird things of apple of this era how bizarre okay clones in general very strange right the official cloning policy and you know other companies can make max and you know people had been clamoring for it for years and and business pundits had been pushing for it for longer. I I've always thought that was easily explained by the fact that Microsoft, all they did was make operating systems and license it to companies, and they made they became like the most powerful company in all of technology and made tremendous amounts of money and apple did the opposite and didn't so therefore apple should do what microsoft does and license their operating system and that was as far as they thought about it and they didn't think about the specific ways that the mac was very very different than windows it was hey here's the thing with windows and menus and a mouse that moves around the screen and some of the apps are the same so they should do what microsoft does and then they'll be better right and turns out no not so much but then you want to get real nerdy about the story. How weird and bizarre is it that it was a third-party company that added multi-processing support to the operating system?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's that's, one of the weirder one of the weirder stories, right?
1: It's bananas. I mean, it's like, yeah, third-party extensions could do some pretty weird stuff by today's standards in the operating systems of the time because the, all operating systems ran so close to the metal and there weren't a lot of, or any in some cases, protection over the memory between processes and stuff. And so you could have extensions that did weird stuff. But something as like profoundly computer engineering and computer science software and hardware of going from single processing where the computer has one CPU and all the software gets in line behind, you know, in one line to go through the CPU for processing to multi-processing where things can run in parallel on multiple CPUs to have that added by a third party is bananas. And that's what happened. And then Apple licensed it. That is truly bananas in hindsight and just shows – I'm not even sure that that shows dysfunction within Apple, but it sort of just shows what a Wild West scenario the Mac and Apple was in the mid-90s.
0: Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that there wasn't a back channel going on where um, Apple either didn't or couldn't put engineering resources on it and Daystar said we – because Daystar was a very high-end reseller. To, to high-end pros, right? So their idea was on, under the clone market, they were going to build like huge towers with enormous bays for all the like storage and cards and whatever else. And they wanted to do multi-processor where we didn't have cores back then. It was like full-on, you know, you could have up to four PowerPC 604Es in there. And um, so I'm not entirely convinced that there wasn't somebody at Apple who was like, well, look, this sounds great, but we aren't going to do it. So if you want to do it, Let's, you know, and maybe there was even some conversation of like, here's how you should do it and all of that. But they basically farmed it out because Daystar cared at a level that Apple was not willing to care yet, at least. And so they did this and they worked with Adobe and Adobe like did a multiprocessing plugin for Photoshop because they knew that like... It was a trend and they probably got some reassurances from Apple. I think Apple was present for this. I don't think it was like it took them by surprise. Yeah. I, I don't have any I don't have any real definitive sources about that. It's just sort of something that I keep noticing in the coverage at the time that there's an indication Apple was involved in some way, but like basically they let Daystar build multiprocessing on classic Mac OS. And then a year later, they shipped a multiprocessor Mac with the Apple multi processor API which was literally just Daystar's API. So, yeah, bananas.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's it it the fact that Adobe was it, it it, it, it part of the story and added official multiprocessing support to Photoshop and other apps followed suit. Of course, that was essential because if there were none of the apps actually written to take advantage of it, who in the world would buy it, right? No matter how cool it was, and DateStar could say, here's a you know, $10,000 Mac-compatible workstation with multiprocessing support. Well, if there was nothing that could do the multiprocessing, it doesn't matter how cool it was in theory, it had to be real but it just shows how it's, it's just bananas in hindsight, especially. And it, I guess the other thing is that in the time it didn't seem that crazy. It just seemed like, Oh yeah, of course Daystar would do this. They've been making high end graphic cards and stuff like that for the Mac for years. So it, it it made a lot more sense at the time. And it's really only in hindsight and as Apple sort of has taken to say the least single (laughs) single handed control over the direction of the operating systems, um, it's just, in hindsight, it really sticks out to me. Yeah. And, you know, just look at this. This is from your article, that the Genesis MP, their $10,000 workstation, it it was two and a half times faster than the high-end Mac, Power Mac oh, 9500 yeah. 132. Like, it wasn't like, oh, it's a little faster. <laughs>
0: no, it, it, it was at a cost of fortune, but right. if you're a high-end user, and that was right. one of those niches that I think I think this was more painful for Apple than a bunch of of uh people buying power computing clones i think losing yeah. uh losing the high end was something that they really yeah. couldn't afford because that was where you made a, a lot of apple's money was coming from high end publishing and then daystar was basically like our clone is a mac that's way better than a mac is and way higher end and yeah it's expensive but it's worth it and so then the apples lost the high ground it's not good
1: yeah. Well, and as an outside observer of that era, you know, someone who wasn't writing about this stuff at all in the 90s, um, and I was just a consumer of it, but someone who keenly observed the meta aspects of publishing, it was always very obvious to me um, how the premier ads in the magazines were for the highest of high-end peripherals and add-on cards and stuff like that. You know, that the front of the book was always the stuff, you know, like $6,000 add-ons for that and this and, you know, stuff that was just, you know, might as well have been advertising Lamborghinis and Rolex watches from my perspective as a college student. But it always made sense to me. It was like, well, yeah, of course, in a professional market, that's what you know, you go for the high-end because that's where the money is. So what profit is for sure, right? And you know, <laughs> Apple just farmed it out to another company. Doesn't sound like today's Apple. <laughs> no, you can see why Steve
0: Jobs came back. I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. <laughs> um, Mac Mini.
1: <laughs> I have never owned a Mac oh, Mini. Oh, interesting. Which. Yeah, well, I you know it's funny. I don't own. I haven't owned a lot of Macs in my life, to be honest. Uh, I do enjoy it, and I love your. uh, I, I I've I don't know if I've ever made this. To me, it's very obvious that the Mac Mini is the proper heir to the G4 Cube. It is small. It is. Uh, expandable in terms of not being an all-in-one. Here's here's a small little square Mac. You put it on your desk. It stays out of the way. It's quiet. You plug what you need into it, and there you go. And it's probably good enough for an awful lot of needs. And it, yeah, isn't that what the Cube was supposed to be?
0: Yeah, it does. I, I mean, that's I don't know if that's a common thought, but that's definitely always been my thought. My thought is that this is the Cube with a lot of the you know design beauty and also some of the pretension stripped away. Uh, but still yeah. it's it's like a little self-contained mac that sits on the, on its own and although it's not for everybody and you've never even had one like it keeps kicking around like you know, people feel they grouse about it when it's not updated for 4 or 5 years but like it hasn't gone away right. because there's obviously a reason enough to keep it around
1: yeah and i think you know it's it, it it's interesting that after the the little period there just a couple years ago, recent history where it was it did languish unchanged for years and came back. A lot of the explanations that Apple offered for here, here's why we've reinvested and re-engineered and made an all new Mac Mini really apply to the market for Mac minis all the way back to the original. You know, that this is something that it it's 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 like a component that you can just carry around and have a Mac set up a Mac here, set up a Mac there. And just do useful fun things with, right? Yeah. It is sort of the humblest. Is it arguably the humblest Mac ever made? The one that's the least acclaimed, the one that just it just sort of it it even design wise, in every aspect, design, price, it's just it's just a quiet little quiet little fellow who just uh does the work. It's probably a performa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> um Mac 2 CX and CI. I cheated a little bit here. I put them together because I have a lot of fondness for the CI. I had one. Um and they're very similar
1: computers, but See, I I don't I don't remember the CX much at all, and that's why I quibble with lumping them together. I remember the CI vividly, and I think the CI is one of the, uh, argue, you know, it's certainly in, in, if you want to separate modern and old Apple, I would argue is, I think the two best Macs ever Apple made in that old era were the SE30 and the 2CI, and the 2CI very specifically. Um, so I wouldn't lump it with the 2CX. I had a friend in college who had a 2CI. And I, I guess he got it in, I think he got it before we started college in 1991, but I think he, his family got it for him in 1990. So it was new or fairly new. Like, I think they came out in 89 when he got it and it was upgradable. And, you know, over the years he added stuff to it and he ran, I mean, he ran like a bulletin board on it at Drexel and it, and while he was running the bulletin board on it, it was still totally usable for him to do his stuff on it. Uh, And Apple sold it for years and years. And it just went from being like a 6,000, I don't know, I'm making up the numbers here because, and, and my, my, my sense of what a 1989 dollar is worth is off, but it was, you know, many, many thousands. And it was very, very high end when it was new. And they just kept selling it and lowering the price over the years, because it was still like a totally credible, totally useful design, which is actually a strategy that Apple uses now all the time. Right. With iPads and especially with iPhones, it's it's basically the iPhone strategy from the last 10, 12 years where, you know, here's a high end iPhone and next year it just will we'll keep selling it and just lower it in price. And then two years later, it will still sell it, but we'll lower it in price even further The the two CI that's exactly what they did. It was so such a good design. It was still a good. It was always a good value at whatever price Apple was offering it. Uh, But that really stands out. Apple didn't do that with Macs at the time. Computer companies didn't really do that. Like everything was like you buy it and then a year later it was gone and just replaced. And most of these computers in your list they weren't for sale for years at a time. Certainly not like the two CI. I think I think that. You know, a lot of this arguing. I'm sure that you know, probably all, basically ninety some percent of the discussion you're having with people is going to be subjective opinions on stuff. I think objectively, the length of time the two CI was for sale is proof that it was one of the best Macs of all time. You can't you can't argue with that.
0: Yeah, there's so many different pieces. The two CX we was the first Mac two I ever used. It was in my college newspaper office, and it it is functionally identical to the 2Ci. It's a processor update, I think, is literally all that happened, is that it had a, a newer processor yeah. in it. But otherwise, it was the same design. And the 2CX, because it came first, like taking the concept of a Mac 2, and the original Mac 2s were enormous, right? And putting it in that compact box. And then, yes, the hardware, having, because I, I bought a 2Ci at the Mac user hardware sale for 50 bucks or whatever,
1: <laughs> and gave it to my. That makes me so it, mad. It, it makes me it so mad parents. that you got one for yeah. That you got one for fifty. It was it was late
0: in the game. It was pretty old, but it, like <laughs> I could pair it with my little external monitor and and set my parents up with a with a new uh, system. And I loved that computer. <laughs> it's so small. Pop the top off. Like there's so much so much great stuff in it. And so that was you know kind of years after it was in its in in the mainstream. It was probably um, you know three or four years after it came out, but it was still great like great little color and color Mac. That's the other thing. A little put a, put the color monitor on top of it. And you had something that kind of looked like the original Mac in terms of a little box with a screen on it. And it was a a full color Mac. Like it was, it was so great.
1: Loved it. The only way you could tell at a glance was that the Apple menu was color. You know, the actual Apple in the Apple menu was six colors instead of black and white. But for the most part, even if you were running it on a (laughs) color display, especially if definitely if you were running system six and then system seven colored in the window title bars so you could see at a glance, but if you were running system six, you really, eh, most of the apps had no color. And your description that when color did appear in apps, it looked like somebody had just sort of filled in the black and white interface <laughs> like a coloring book was exactly right. You just had to look in the upper left corner, though, to see if the Apple logo was six colors, and then you'd know you had a, a color Mac. Um, in fact, my, I will say this, yeah, too. For, well, d- d- you oh, go Oh, well I was just going to
0: say first. that the um, the first Mac 2 I used, though, was not... Uh, it was not the first Mac I used with a color screen. It had, it had a grayscale screen because we didn't, it was a newspaper Mm. office. Like we didn't publish in color. So it had shades of gray, which was cool and was very helpful for looking at images and stuff, black and white images. But it was, it was until the two SI, I think that we actually got a color monitor in the office. And that, that also blew me away. And that was when I, I realized myself that, Something that's that's still true to this day, to a certain extent, which is the Mac was conceived as a black and white computer, and then its its relationship with color is complicated.
1: Well, I remember too that you could, for years, you could go to the monitor's control panel, and uh, still, I'll go to, I'll be like eighty nine years old and remember the monitor's control panel, Um, (laughs) uh, and you could set it, you could set those. For the most part, most of the ones I had access to were 256 colors. Um, 256 colors is not a lot of colors. Yeah, <laughs> Really? And you could look at things and they didn't look good. Like looking at a photograph in 256 color, a color photograph in 256 colors, you could really see that you were missing a lot of colors and you'd have to use dithering to... Just to get it to look okay, whereas two hundred and fifty six shades of gray look great. Yeah. It was more probably more gray than you even needed.
0: Yep, that's true. I had I think my first PowerBook had sixteen levels of gray or something, and they were like that was amazing.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, and it was yeah sixteen, and you could definitely you could get performance more performance out of a color Mac by going to sixteen colors. And you know, people who were on the PC side back then remember too that you know there are a lot of PCs that were only sixteen colors, um, but. 16 shades of gray was actually still really, you could look at a photograph and it was pretty good, and uh, 256, more than enough. You really don't need more than 256 shades of gray. Um, whereas color, yeah, you kind of needed thousands. And then that was always, to me, the very apple way of putting it was where instead of telling you it was 65,000, I don't even remember the magic number for it, but whatever, you know the next power of 2 is that goes you up there instead of telling you that they just said thousands and i always thought that was a nice apple touch how about this uh-huh. uh the the 2ci 2cx as since you've lumped them together as uh exemplification of apple's crappy product names of the era mm-hmm because doesn't the 2cx sound like the sequel and the 2ci sound like the original but it's the other way around yeah. x comes after i and as we've all learned and in many of the products in this in apple's history show you x is the coolest letter of the alphabet it's, so why would the why would the first one be the cx
0: yeah i don't i don't know and also it was the first it was the first compact Mac Two, so they could have called it the Mac Two C, but did they not? Because there was also <laughs> no, a Mac, there was never. I think there was a Mac Two, and then there was the Mac Two X, right? Because it was cool, and right. then I think they also right. came out with the compact version, so they called it the CX. Probably it was because it was the compact version of the cool X. Yeah, I think that must have been why. And then and then the I, I don't even know what the I stands for. Is that for like? Integer was there something very specific like in the in, yeah, in like, the FPU of the yeah. of the maybe the computer the the processor had an FPU and then the first one didn't have an FPU because floating point operations was a whole like extra processor category back then I don't know it, you're right it's a much better name <laughs> I'm glad the CI is the one that lasted because the CX and and also I can't really interrogate this too much because. CX always stood for me for the old one because that was the first one I saw. And so whenever I would see any right. others I'd be like, well, it's not like that X. X X means old and crappy like yeah. so I don't know. Uh, but what a terrible name. Yeah, all all of them are terrible names, right? Mac 2 was yeah. like now we're doing a color Mac. It's the Mac 2. Great. <laughs> Great. And then it was just let's st- stick on letters after that. Yeah, They could have called this well, don't even... They could have called this like the Mac you know mac compact or mac you know something else but they're just like nah it's just another mac 2 and they, they have, there was a whole mac 2 line for a long time all the way up through the like 2si before they finally went to you know quadras and centresses and all of that
1: on the other hand on the other hand and i can just imagine i'm trying to trying to be magnanimous here There's somebody out there listening to this, and they're from the mid-90s Apple product marketing team, and they had a hand in these names. And I know what they want to say is they want to say, but, 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 if they had just called them all Mac 2s, the way that Apple today just calls everything, you know, iPad, we wouldn't be able to remember these products so specifically and talk about them, right? maybe. (laughs) Maybe so. Right, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't have as strong a feeling as of the Mac Two yes. CX versus Two CI if it was just all the Mac 2 1990 versus Nineteen Eighty
0: Nine. Right, <laughs> right. It's, it's as if you don't have fond memories of the Thirteen Inch uh, MacBook Pro uh, Two Thunderbolt Three Ports Twenty Seventeen. <laughs> that was a classic. Yeah. Who could forget? Uh, 20th anniversary Mac. Uh, Which I'll point out shipped uh, a year after. Not only was it not the 20th anniversary of the Mac, but it was also, it shipped on the 21st anniversary of Apple.
1: (laughs) I'm going to say it was, you know, this is right up there with with the Power Mac 5300 as exemplifying everything that had gone haywire within Apple from engineering to uh uh, marketing to you know like you just the name (laughs) the fact that it a wasn't the 20th anniversary of the mac which everybody in hindsight would naturally think it is and it wasn't even the 20th anniversary of apple anymore because it was the 21st (laughs) it was came out so late uh it it had it it was unveiled at uh, undeniably the worst Apple keynote that it ever has ever been delivered or will ever be delivered. I had
0: forgotten that this was unveiled there because all I can remember is Gil Emilio stalling for time.
1: All right. So this was unveiled at, I believe, Macworld Expo, I think was the occasion for the keynote. And there were two at the time. So I'm guessing it was the winter one in San Francisco. And it was the comeback. It was the announcement of, okay, it was the first keynote after Apple had agreed to buy Next and bring Steve Jobs back to the company at the time only as an advisor. And Jobs himself did take the stage at one point. And so you would think, oh, that must have been when the keynotes got good again, because Steve Jobs came back and took the keynote. No, (laughs) no. This this is the worst keynote you could ever possibly imagine, and Gil Emilio went up there with no notes, no preparation, and decided in addition to all of that, which you already have to start thinking, probably not a good way to do a keynote with no notes and no preparation, but also with the idea that he should talk for a long time.
0: My understanding is that Steve Jobs was late. That's the story I've heard. And so that Mm. Gil Emilio ended up having to vamp on stage for a very long time. Uh, and then Jobs finally arrived and strode onto the stage and everybody loved him. Um, yeah. I, well, maybe I, I kind of believe I believe that more as a power move on Jobs's part than anything. Like they'll right. wait for me. Um, but it was bad. Well,
1: whatever the explanation, it was bad. Mm. And then they, you know, they unveiled the twentieth anniversary Mac, and and I guess the other part, the thing that's more maybe more interesting about the twentieth anniversary Mac than the Power Mac fifty three hundred is that there's really no lesson to be learned from the fifty three hundred. There wasn't like a kernel of goodness, whereas. 20th anniversary Mac was late. It was poorly named. It was probably a very bad idea, frankly, to ship at all as it was in the first place because it really was. It was just, it was a concept, yeah. really. I mean, they only made a few thousand. It was crazy expensive, but it did show the way of the future, right? This was, yeah. it was the first Mac that looked like what a desktop map, Mac would basically look like. In the just within a handful of more years, yeah. It so you know and and again like you you know you pointed out in your write up that it 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 certainly showed why Steve Jobs would go back in maybe with a gut feeling of I got to clean house here and get everybody out of here, but then met Johnny Ive and Johnny Ive's team and realized hey these guys are good there's there is talent here and you know the twentieth anniversary Mac shows it. Was it a good product? No. no. Was it a good idea? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good concept.
0: Should've... It is a right to say this is where we need to be thinking about computers going in the future. But why would you sell it? it, it just, <laughs> right? like Because it is it – is, and this was a criticism of a lot of um, Macs early in this century which was they're using laptop parts all the PC snobs were like they're using laptop mm-hmm. parts on desktops how outrageous but like this is them saying the future <laughs> is going to be these laptop parts that are smaller and more efficient and we can use them in all sorts of interesting ways in order to do a flat screen mac which you know they they were toying with the idea of doing a flat screen iMac in that first iMac generation and finally decided it was still not ready. And they pushed it off again until the G4. So like it, it's all, you're exactly right. It's all there. This was a computer designed by designers who were thinking about where computers were going and wanted to see what the issues were. And that's all, that's what you should be doing in a design studio. You should just not bring that out into the light of day and sell it. If you're Apple, it's a very not, I mean, Apple doesn't do that kind of stuff ever again after Jobs came back. It's like, we're never shipping a product before we're confident that it's going to be accepted and bought by people. And this was not that. This was just an extravagance at the very end of of this old era of Apple.
1: Yeah, it should have been a secret project that nobody had ever, never saw the light of day outside the labs. And then maybe Apple could have you know, 15, 20 years later, come out and said, hey, by the way, let's just show you something we had in the labs back in 1997. And everybody would be like, whoa, that was amazing. No wonder, you know, Johnny Ive was and, amazing even when he got and there. And keep in mind, this is an era
0: where, I think I mentioned this in the in the write-up, that this was, every couple of years, they would just cart prototypes out from their design lab and put them in Macworld or Macuser. Like like yeah, here's some crazy Macs that you're never gonna buy that uh, we thought about and aren't they cool looking? And they like literally there would be cover stories and people would be like, well, I'm right. sure they sold well. And it's like what the heck is that? And then they read it, and it's like, oh, these are all made up things that don't exist and we're just prototypes. But they put them in they like they placed right. them in magazines. Look at our prototypes. How un right. Apple like to do that. But that was nineties Apple.
1: Right. And this one this right. one got and away though. And, this one and escaped and
0: I... into the world. <laughs>
1: Right, and I I think it's no little thing. I think it is a very big thing. I've written about it at Daring Fireball occasionally over the years and come back to it over and over again that companies that ship, that unveil, whatever you want to call ship, but unveil prototypes, it is a bad idea almost always and it's it it's a bad idea from a product marketing standpoint because you're making whatever's already out look bad because you're saying, look at this thing, this fictional thing, and it's it's just a sign of laziness because it it's you know you can phrase the adage however many you want that you know the first half is you know 90% of the work and the second half or the last 10 first 90% is I, uh, i'm butchering it i mean <laughs> let me go back to we're editing this right oh uh, yeah <laughs> uh, I don't know that, uh, you know, the last 10% is the hardest 90% of the work you're going to do or something like that, you know, phrase it however you want. Um, but that's, that's what concepts avoid. They avoid all the hard work of actually finishing and shipping and putting it into a, price tag that is profitable for the company and affordable for the intended market, you you skip all of that hard work and you just say, but just look, it's a cool idea. Isn't this awesome? You know, And the 20th anniversary Mac exemplified that. It's also one of the most famous bits of product placement in Mac history. And you know what I'm thinking of. I can't believe you didn't mention this.
0: Uh, is it that Jerry Seinfeld had one?
1: Right. That it's, it, you know, it was, it was, it,
0: he it, had many Macs before that, but he did at one point have right. a 20th anniversary Mac on that, on that desk in the, in the, um, set in the background.
1: Right. And it was always as a Mac nerd in the 90s when the Mac, you know, felt like it was, even when it wasn't beleaguered, it was at least sort of, you felt like you were in a secret club. Mm-hmm. Uh, it and as a f- enormous fan of the Seinfeld show, even from the first season when nobody watched it and by all rights should have been canceled and wasn't even called Seinfeld, was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he had a Mac in in his studio. Or in his living room, I guess it wasn't a studio apartment. He had a one bedroom, bedroom, yeah. They never showed you back there, yeah. But uh, that he had a Mac back there it was always like, hey, cool. Um, but then when it was like towards the end, when it became a 20th anniversary Mac, it was like, hey, there's no way this guy would have a 20th anniversary Mac, right? Because <laughs> in the show, he wasn't Jerry Seinfeld, the guy with a massive massively popular sitcom making tens of millions of dollars a year he was just like a semi-successful stand-up comedian right. in new york city like he wouldn't have a, a 20th anniversary ten thousand no. dollar.
0: no but they they did that right? placement. you remember the story that they did a um as a promo for some you know launch of seinfeld somewhere on some tv show they did a um uh, they they rebuilt the Seinfeld apartment set somewhere in New York City. It was like for a limited time and you could go see it. And the the reason I remember this is that they had a PC on the on the desk. And uh, and no, Christina Warren this. called them out on Twitter and and said, This is outrageous. <laughs> what are you doing? Everybody knows that Jerry Seinfeld had a Mac on his desk. And you know what? They changed it. Because of Christina, <laughs> I don't remember because that. of Christina calling them on how they were not accurately rebuilding the set because they didn't have a Mac, and they did, and they put they put like a and color it. classic or something on there, which was one of the parade of Macs. Jerry had a new Mac. He was buying Macs all the time. He had a problem. Right. There were no episodes about it, but he very clearly was buying a new Mac. Or he had like a friend. Maybe he had like a guy. Maybe Kramer knew a guy. Who would like get yeah. him a new Mac off the back of a truck every so often?
1: I don't know. What was the? I I can't believe I can't remember this. What was the name of the PC company whose boxes were decorated like cows? Oh, was that Gateway? Gateway two thousand? Gateway, right? Like if if he had had a Gateway, and then in the set recreation they had put a Dell. Nobody, no, somebody yeah. might have noticed. It might have been an article at our slightly Technica, different beige. But, Right, but but they would have pointed it out to say, I notice, you know, don't think we didn't notice, but nobody would have been outraged, like, you need to fix this. <laughs> you know, like the Mac-PC divide in the 90s, if anything, was more important to Mac users than it would be now. Right? Oh, yeah. It, it really was a thing. Yeah. You really do have to get that
0: and, right. And Christina, you know, she was on it. Bless her. <laughs> she, cause I, yeah. saw it, I had the same thought that she did, but I didn't call them out on Twitter and say, you blew it. <laughs> But they, they got it right eventually. That's that's yeah. it. What a crazy machine. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's we'll do fun. another round. People will be more outraged with my so how many, higher picks.
1: So how many how many are there here? Nine? There are nine. Is that right? Nine or of no. the twenty. Yeah, there's nine. Right. All right. All right. And I'm not gonna ask for spoilers, but uh I mean I'll tell you t- I'll, t-
0: I'll tell you if you ask if something's on there or not. It's it's not going to be a surprise. There are a couple of weird choices in there because again, I want to keep it interesting. But um and there's sort because again, my my premise, and I haven't written the intro yet, but my premise is sort of like notable, twenty twenty most notable or interesting max, not my favorite or the best, because the right. best is very hard to define. It's like the latest is always the fastest and all that. Right. But I, I wanted it to be like important and notable. So like um like Syracuse is mad at me because the original Mac is not number one it's not Hmm. it's not number one it's high up but it's not number one because although it is where it all started I think there are are a couple more notable or important Macs in the history of the Mac Um, you know and I I also did cheat and push a couple of things together in a couple of places like I did with the uh, like 2CX and the 2CI and the and the G5 enclosure, yeah. I, I did that. Like the SE and the SE30. I never had an SE30, but I know how amazing it was. I had an right. SE Same and it here. was my first computer. So I'm going to write about the SE and the SE30 together because they're great and classic and really brought the Mac to the masses in a way that the the beige plus and, and 128 didn't and 512. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to keep those. I'm going to push those together. And then there's some modern ones yeah. on there that like people don't give enough credit for. I, the Cube's in the top 10 because the Cube's so bizarre and weird and says so much about the mind of Steve Jobs, even though it was a flop. I th- I feel like it's a super notable, interesting Mac, but, you know, I don't know. I also
1: think, uh, well, all right, I'll save it for okay. when, when we talk about it. I also think that the I've always thought that the G4 Cube, while it was undeniably a flop and... Uh, I've always thought that for a flop, it was enormous. It was closer than you could think to of being a hit. Yeah. You know? I, I, like, I wonder at, sometimes at if being... they had
0: stuck with it if and not just kind of abandoned it and moved on to other stuff. At some point, somebody either right. Jobs got embarrassed by it, even though it was clearly his idea, right. uh, or somebody talked him out of it. But uh, I do wonder what if they had iterated on
1: it. I still think, I think one of the big mistakes was going G4 instead of G3, mm. because I really feel, because like, that would have reduced the price tremendously, and I don't think, I thought it was the Steve Jobs personal angle that he wanted one, which is why it had a G4, you know, like, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I just can't help but think that if they could have gotten that, if they put a G3 in there, it, instead of being 1,800, it might have been a 1,000, and... That might have just solved an awful lot of problems and forgiven a lot of cracks. Yeah. <laughs> uh I I got it, the uh twelve inch G four power book has gotta be in. The
0: twelve inch power book, I don't have it on my list. Really? And I love oh. I loved well, I loved it. Hmm. I loved it. I don't know. Now you're you're making me question myself. I, I I'm gonna think about it. It was it was on my list for a long time and then I thought is there another way I can talk about Apple's attempts to make small laptops that include it? Which is mm. why I might sneak it into a discussion of like the the um the second generation MacBook Air, which is in the top five, because right. I feel like that is oh, a super yeah. definitive laptop. Um I might sneak it in there, but you're right. I mean, I did love that twelve inch. I love the black the black polycarbonate MacBook too, and that's not on the list, or the black and the, the white ones. But like oh, I right, like right. I love those yeah, too, yeah. but I don't have those on the list either. So all right. I don't know. All I got right. t- I got all time to right. <laughs> revisit all of my choices, but uh, but yeah, because I did love I love the twelve inch, although it's super thick. Like it's a super super thick.
1: Yes, laptop. that's the one thing. It's the one thing that stands out historically. It's super. Yeah, thick. but it was. It- but when you when you look at it top down though, wow. it still looks right? It still looks modern. Yeah, that's true.
0: All right. Thank you for the time. Right. Um, we'll uh, we'll check back in. <laughs> we'll be back. All
1: right. All right. Thanks. (laughs) I appreciate it. It's fun.